Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. Not only do we bring you the best guests in true crime and an even better community, but we are punctual about it as well, starting right at the top of the hour, as promised. Today, we dive back into the Dan Markell murder case with a couple of oldies but goodies. Uh, members are uh, friends, I should say, of Surviving the Survivor, who I'm about to introduce, and a new face. Uh, and by oldies and goodies, I mean people who have been on the show repeatedly, not in age, of course. Um, of course, the Dan Markell murder case, for those who have not been following it and living under a, a rock somewhere, he is the Harvard-educated FSU law professor, gunned down in his Tallahassee driveway back in 2014, Two hitmen and a go-between, a woman known as Katie Magbanawa, already convicted of the crime, uh, sitting in prison while Katie is in a jail in Leon County uh, right now. Uh, she may testify in this case, which we'll talk about. Ex-brother-in-law, Charlie Adelson, whose trial began yesterday. Uh, he is the man accused of putting the hit on his ex-brother-in-law, Dan Markell. Jury selection continues into day two today and that is why you see our first best guest here richard gabriel since 1985 richard gabriel has been a leader in the field of jury research jury selection and litigation communication with experience in more than 1500 trials in both the civil and criminal arenas across the country some of his big cases include listen to these names aaron hernandez casey anthony oj simpson Phil Spector, Enron, remember that Remember that company? Whitewater, Kwame Kilpatrick, the uh, former mayor of Detroit, Heidi Fleiss, and uh, numerous other high-profile civil and criminal uh, matters. Richard is also the author of Acquittal, an insider reveals the stories and strategies behind today's most infamous verdicts about his high-profile trial work. Uh, that was actually optioned by Warner Warner Brothers and developed by CBS by a little guy known as Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, and Richard is also the co-author of Jury Selection, Strategy, and Science. Uh, the Woman Behind the Avatar. That is the mysterious fancy fiction, in my opinion, one of the most intriguing people uh, surrounding the ongoing Dan Markell slash Charlie Adel. Adelson case. She uh, remains anonymous, hosting a YouTube channel with the same name, Fancy Fiction, where she's painstakingly posted important videos highlighting pertinent wiretaps related to the players, some implicated, others not, in the Dan Markell saga. Last but certainly not least, Judy Tsang, she's the founder and owner of the Wake Law Office, born in Chicago and raised in Georgia. She completed her undergraduate studies at the University of California, Berkeley, not too shabby a school, and received her law degree from the Georgetown University Law Center, not too shabby a school, and she hosts Asian American Legal Focus on YouTube. Welcome uh, to one and all. A uh, couple of quick uh, notes, if you can, please support us on Patreon, if you can. Please support us on YouTube. If you can't do either of those, one of the most important things for us is please give us a five-star review on uh, whatever audio platform you listen to us on. That would uh, include Apple, 
uh, Spotify, all the biggies, uh, Audible, et cetera, et cetera. Also, our friend Ruth Markell, the mother of Dan Markell, she's actually going to be hosting an event in Tallahassee. She is there now. Uh, it is at a synagogue synagogue called Shomre Torah. It's on Kerry Forest Parkway. Shomre Torah on Kerry Forest Parkway. It is tomorrow, Wednesday, October 25th at 7 p.m. Wednesday, October 25th at 7 p.m. Um, speaking of them, Ruth, uh, Phil, Dan's father, and Shelly, uh, Dan's sister, they have been in the courtroom. They're going to be watching the trial from inside as they have done uh, in the other two trials uh, to date. And um, Ruth was just quoted in the Tallahassee Democrat, which is sort of the paper of record on this case. She just said to the paper today, we hope that justice prevails. There's a tremendous loss and each trial reactivates that the grief that you have for a lost child. Uh, so this is a very intense time, but we're also grateful for how much support we are blessed with. Vance, I'm going to start with you and then get over to Richard and Judy. But um, what do you think uh, Ruth, Phil and Shelly are going through right now? Um, you know, the trial is underway, but we're in the jury selection process. Uh, but, you know, couple of days from now, we're really going to be in the middle of it all. What do you think they are experiencing? Um, well, I communicate with Ruth, so I have a pretty good understanding um, uh, about her, not so much Phil and Shelly, but I know that she's extremely, extremely nervous. Um, you know, a lot's on the line. She's waited years to, you know, grab justice, you know, sort of step by step. And I know it's extremely painful for her, and she's just going to be sitting on pins and needles hoping nothing goes wrong and that she gets justice for her son. And I think that's, that's all she's focused on right now. And I, I do know that she said after this event, she's going to com completely switching her mindset and going into trial mode. So she made that point that she's going to have to turn on a switch and, um, and be very brave and sit through all this mess. And Richard, I mean, you can speak to this as well. I know you don't personally know Ruth, but um, how agonizing is it? for the families involved uh, at the start of a trial, knowing that, you know, in this case, Charlie's future hangs in the balance, but also getting justice for Dan Markell is of, uh, you know, paramount importance to the Markell. So what is it like on uh, both sides? It's, it's brutal. I mean, these cases, we think of them as evidentiary procedural type of exercises where it's about evidence and legal, but it's about people. It's about some of the hor most horrible things that they've experienced in their lives, which is the loss of a loved one or an accused or a person who's close to them being accused and possibly going away to prison for a long time. So it's gut-wrenching because they don't know what the outcome is. They know how they feel about it. But to watch them in the courtroom trying to contain themselves, trying to behave in a proper decorum while still dealing with that intense emotion is, is a pretty extraordinary experience. A mm. uh, shout out to Henshi Held coming to us from Jerusalem where uh, rockets were being fired on uh, Tel Aviv today once again. So thank you to Henshi and uh, Tali, of course, Tali Schechter, who's coming to us um, from Tel Aviv. A quick programming note, which I should have mentioned off the top. This is uh, two for Tuesday. Uh, we're going to do another show, 9 p.m. tonight on the Delphi murders. It's been um, 
just an epic collapse there. Uh, the defense has withdrawn, and we've got an amazing panel, including Brett Talley um, of the Prosecutors Podcast. They just won a podcast of the year at CrimeCon. He's going to be here along with Susan Hendricks, who wrote the book Down the Hill, formerly of CNN, and uh, Laura Ingle who's reporting for News Nation, and she was just in Delphi last week, met an interesting man. She's going to tell us all about that. Uh, that is at 9 p.m. Eastern time. So, Judy, to you, um, Charlie Adelson wearing a suit in court today that sort of matches his complexion, the ashen gray complexion he is uh, exposing these days. Um, what do you think, just generally speaking, Judy, of the way he's been looking the last few times? Well, he actually looks a little bit better with the suit on, so good for him, you know, but um, he did a good job looking kind of pathetic when the jury consultant told him to stand up so people could look at him. So I sort of almost felt a little sorry for him. Mm. Did you say that, Judy? I can't believe you said that. Yeah, um, you can't. Well, of course, I feel much more sorrier for Dan and his family. But, you know, he he did a good job looking pathetic. In a, you know, to be fair, this is horrific all the way around. Obviously, uh, the Adelsons, Bear uh, and Charlie in particular, uh, about to, you know, face the moment of truth, bearing uh, a lot of responsibility, according, uh, you know, to the indictment here. So we're going to see how it all plays out. Uh, Judy, one more legal question. I'm going to pivot to some of the um, jury issues uh, with Richard after that. But um, there was a uh, defense motion today for a change of venue. Um, Judge Stephen Everett uh, basically uh, swiftly denied that. Is that something that you were expecting? Is that SOP? Um, yes. Denied? Yeah. I was definitely expecting that because I had previously interviewed Chuck Collins, who was Louis Rivera's attorney. So he said he filed a motion to change venue also. And that was very quickly denied. Mm. Uh, so Richard, uh, let's kind of, break this down a little bit, but jury selection in this case, it's interesting. We had on Jeremy Mutz, a former Tallahassee prosecutor, and when he found out that 900 possible jurors were summoned, his jaw hit the uh, table because, you know, he's used to maybe 20 or 30 in a typical trial in Tallahassee. But our other guest last night was the main anchor for Court TV, Vinnie Politan, a great guy. And he said that it is almost across the board, a jury, uh, potential jury pool of that size for high profile cases. Does this number of 900 surprise you in any way? Not really. I mean, Vinny's great and he's covered so many of these high profile trials and he knows that the, the challenge here, while you may not need 900 people, you have no idea how many people have been exposed to this. And you have to go through everybody because First of all, there's a series of hardships that you have to do to find out who can even sit on a trial that length. And that can easily cut a jury pool in half. And then you have to deal with also the people who have then seen and heard a lot about the case and whether they can be fair. So that's why they're going through this painstaking, arduous process of calling the, the amount of jurors that they are because they may they may need that much. I did want to point out one issue regarding the change of venue, which is a very interesting one as well, because 
in Florida, it's very difficult to get a change of venue. From what I understand, you have to basically show that it's impossible to get a fair jury in your in your particular venue. And so it's very hard. And even though when we were doing the Casey Anthony case, we made a motion for change of venue. Actually, the prosecution in that case agreed with us. And that's why they went to Tampa to pick the jury and then brought them back to Orlando. So it's not completely unheard of. Some gang cases are are where that are taking place in Miami are moved. So transferring jurors is an option if the judge is so inclined. But I think in this case, the, the judge is probably going to say, no, we have enough jurors in Tallahassee to be able to uh, to pick a jury here. Yeah, and that's that appears to be what Judge Stephen Everett did. Here's a quote from uh, Tim Jansen, obviously one of our best guests, the famed Tallahassee defense attorney. He's um, recuperating at home from uh, five cracked ribs, and uh, hopefully the pain is less. Tim, I know you're uh, watching, but this is a quote he gave to the Tallahassee Democrat today. In 2000, U.S. District Judge Robert Hinkle granted our change of venue motion in U.S. versus Larry Lombardi, the FAMU bombing case. That's how rare change of venue motions are granted because he's talking about this being close to 24 years ago. So it is not a very um, frequent thing that occurs. Um, Fancy to you, uh, there was just a comment asking, is court going to be busier once the actual you know, quote unquote, trial gets underway. Um, I've spoken to Katie Coolady, who is a uh, member of STS Nation, and uh, she told me the court is basically empty. Uh, does it surprise you, or is it just because we're in the beginning stages here trying to actually pick a jury? And do you expect it to be jam packed uh, once Steve Cohen and I get up there for STS next week? Yeah, well, I think once the fanfare of you and Steve's arrival <laughs> dies down. Um, I think that, I think that there will be room. Um, I actually, I had to silence a call from Kathy, um, just now who sort of was calling and is, um, you know, she, she also, you know, she, I, sorry, I just want to do a quick plug for her because I want to, her name is, um, Katie Cool Lady. She might chime in here to the chat, but what's really interesting about her is that she's a trained psychiatric nurse. So if she mm-hmm. looks, she looks for things. And she documents them and has years of doing that. She's retired now. She has cleared her schedule and driven from Pennsylvania uh, to, uh, to Tallahassee with the sole purpose. She's not going to be doing legal stuff. She's not going to be giving commentary, making jokes. She's specifically going to be watching the jury. She um, has sat through a couple trials um, as a victim. Her own sister was murdered, and it's a, it was kind of a high-profile case, and she's been on TV shows talking about it. So she has experience of a victim, of a nurse. And then she actually went and sat in on the Jody Arias trial every day, as well as a Scott Peterson as sort of a victim supporter, um, you know, got very engaged with the family and even found some evidence and became on the witness list, I believe, for the Scott Peterson. So this is someone who's very seasoned, has the training and is sitting there now watching the courtroom and all the jurors right now. So, um, you know, she's been texting me all day and um, I would really encourage people to go follow her um, because she's posting little updates of observations that she's seen uh, in the jury. So I just want to point people there, um, and she will also be doing this during trial. But she also, going back now that that's all done, she says it's the largest courtroom she has ever been in, in Tallahassee. And she said that she is actually absolutely shocked at how 
you can just walk in, you know, no security. They're, you know, they're not that fussy about things as compared to the media hype of the Scott Peterson and Jody Arish trial. So I do think there will be room in the courtroom um, per Kathy. And yeah, again, once you and Steve leave, that should clear a lot of room for other people to come. Fancy, don't underestimate the magnetic charm of Steve Cohen, otherwise known as Meve Moen, especially in person. That guy radiates. Um, I can care. I will take photos next week when there are throngs of people surrounding <laughs> Steve Cohen. He will, in fact, become a people magnet uh, once he's in there. But it's funny because I called um, about four or five weeks ago. I called an email to get press credentials because I'm a neurotic former uh, broadcast news guy. And uh incredibly laid back at the Leon County Courthouse. To your point, uh, they were kind of wondering why I was even asking for press credentials, um, you know, and uh, they assured us it would be fine. And lo and behold, I got um, press credentials. So uh, we're hoping to do a bunch of interviews when we are there. And look at this fancy Katie Cool Lady uh, on the chat. I'll be at Ruth's event tomorrow. Again, that is tomorrow night um, at a synagogue in Tallahassee, called Shom Ray Torah. It's a, just remember the word Torah, and it's on Kerry Forest Parkway for those who are listening to us from the Tallahassee area, and I know there's a bunch of you there. Um, look at this flower goddess saying hello from my neck of the woods in Miami, and um, obviously there are uh, strong Miami ties to this. Perhaps uh, the whole reason we're here is because of uh, Miami and uh Donna Adelson's desire to have her grandchildren uh, close. Look at this. Murray Muncie says, woo-hoo, it is fancy fiction. Tennis Girl says, yay, Judy, got all the bases covered. Um, Richard, to you, so let's just break down some of these uh, juror numbers, these uh, potential jurors. Um, so 900 people, as we mentioned, were summoned to serve on the jury, which uh, the judge says is going to have 12 members and three alternates. Uh -huh. As many as 360 jurors were expected to report between Monday and Wednesday, or roughly 120 a day. Uh, we know now that 41 of them made it through on Monday, 41 prospective jurors, um, and another about 14 or so cleared that hurdle Tuesday morning. Uh, the court said it was hoping to get about 60 prospective jurors lined up for group jury selection, which starts uh, was supposed to start uh, this afternoon. Just walk us through these numbers. So 900 in total, uh, broken down to 360 to report, uh, 41 make it through yesterday. Anything of note with these numbers as you're hearing them? Not, not really. I mean, the, the, what everybody goes to is, okay, how many jurors do I need? In order to exercise peremptory challenges, you need obviously the 12 plus the three, plus you need however many peremptory strikes on each side. And then obviously a cushion for the amount of cause challenges, because there's a certain amount of people who, even if they clear the initial hurdle of getting through there, there's still going to be additional cause challenges. And cause challenges, for those of you who don't know, are different than peremptory strikes. Every, every jury selection there's two ways that you are deselecting a jury. You're actually not selecting a jury. You're actually deselecting a jury, which means you are identifying the people that you mo you you want to eliminate from the from the panel because you think they're going to be the highest risk to you and your side. And you can ask the judge to say, 
based on these jurors' answers, either because of the pretrial publicity or because they themselves have been through a terrible divorce and custody hearings, they just can't hear this case. They can't be unbiased and impartial in listening to it. So the judge can then, on their own discretion, excuse those jurors. You need enough jurors, enough uh, cause challenges for that, and then the enough peremptory strikes, which each side gets a certain number, in order to then, at their own discretion, say, I'm going to now eliminate a certain number of jurors in order to end up with the jury panel. And uh, Judy, since you did go to the Georgetown Law Center, the same as John Singer, um, I have to give both of you an IQ test and see who does better. But I'm sure you're both going to uh, perform very well on that. But uh, did it did it surprise you to see that number of uh, 900? Um, was it something that you took a second yes. look at? Oh, yeah, definitely. That was a huge number of people. And I did have some comments about that jury consultant that they hired. Yeah, yeah. We'll I want to get into that a little bit, but yeah, go, go. We'll talk for, about it later. You can you can you can you can start us off and I'll uh, and I'll dig into it. What did oh, you Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I I was kind of turned off by him today. I don't know if you guys saw that towards the end of the day, but he seemed very aggressive and just had this kind of odd demeanor. The, I felt like Rashbaum should have done it. Yeah. So uh, Judy here is talking about a guy named Josh Dubin, who's uh, yeah. very well known. Uh, I can see Richard shaking his head in acknowledgement. Um, I'm going to circle back to that, but I'm glad Judy did bring it up. Um, he is a New Yorker. I'm from outside uh, New York City. So I know that uh, us New Yorkers and New Jerseyans can be obnoxious. And some people did perceive him um, as being such. I even had a a tweet that I pulled out. Um, but I want to get to this quote here from, um, so this is Tim Jansen being interviewed by the Tallahassee Democrat today, uh, Richard, uh, regarding jury selection. And he says, this jury selection is tricky because jurors will lie or mask their true feelings because they want to be on this jury. Jurors want to be part of a high profile case for many reasons, including book rights, TV interviews or other personal motives. You don't normally win a case at jury selection, but you can certainly lose a case if you're not prepared or careful in the selection process. Do you care to uh, comment on this? Well, he, he's right. I mean, it, jury deselection is, is one of the most important elements there. High-profile trials really do have their own special set of difficulties and challenges. There are people who clearly want to get on there. They've got an agenda. They either want to convict or they want to acquit. They sometimes do it for the celebrity. Um, but also, they're intimidated. There's a lot of jurors who want to be fair, but are actually loaded up with a lot of information about the case, they're in a high-pressure situation. They're at being asked these, sometimes what I think is ridiculous questions, which is, can you be fair and impartial despite everything you've heard about the case, despite everything you may have even given an opinion on? Um, and sometimes they do slip through. So there's a number of, of sort of gray area agendas that I think you're also looking for. And if you're not careful, especially if on the prosecution side, one important point to remember is that the prosecution needs a unanimous verdict here. They need everybody. So defense oftentimes, and I've done this too, which is sometimes you're not looking for an acquittal jury. You're not looking for an unanimous group. You're looking for a couple of jurors 
that are going to hang a hang a jury or are going to at least drive a wedge between and create reasonable doubt there. And so sometimes there's a different thing that you're looking for in terms of personality and the sort of the match, the personality blend that you're looking for on the jury panel as you're selecting. And Richard, I'm uh, taking notes about some of the things you're saying, but one of the things that I am curious about is always how people end up doing what they do. Uh, Back in 1986, when you started this, um, it's an interesting niche profession. Um, How'd you fall into this? How come you didn't become an attorney or uh, a prosecutor? And how come you went into jury consulting? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a stubborn person. My mother's a judge and my dad's a psychologist. And I didn't want to go into either of those professions, clearly. So I decided to carve a path right between them and kind of absorb a little bit of both there. And so um, as I got into it, I actually was doing a lot of communication skills because uh, that's where I, what my undergraduate degree was, was in. And I was training I was doing communication skills and I sometimes were doing classes where attorneys would show up and they would say, hey, I have a case and can you help me with a witness or can you help me think about, you know, how do you do this? And having some legal background, because I went to court and watched my mom's trials all the time, I would help them. And then they and so push comes to shove. I learned a lot about sort of the social science because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of jury research out there right now about how jurors actually make decisions in the cases, and one thing led to another. I fell into some of these high-profile cases, and uh, here I am, 38 years later. 38 years later, I'm sure doing well, enjoying his career. Uh, kudos to you for that. Uh, Kathy Glassford says, "Fancy fiction is here." Uh, fancy fiction. Uh, we've all been following you. Uh, you're the insider, as I like to say. Uh, Fox Sports has Jay, Jay Glazer, the football insider. You're the uh, Dan Markell, Charlie Adelson, Adelson family insider. What's it like for uh, you to have the first Adelson, um, you know, on trial now? What's it like for you? Um, I don't know. I, I, I um. I've got mixed feelings about it because I think that that his family members should be sitting beside him in that courtroom, not behind him for support, which they're not doing, which how does that look to a jury? I'd be interested on the thoughts of people in this panel that his family are going to be fingers are going to be pointed at his family. Circumstantial evidence and motive are going to be brought that lay to bear that the only people that wanted Dan Markell dead that had the motive and all the circumstantial evidence, the wealth of evidence, point to his family, but yet he is the only family member sitting there being held accountable, and his family members are not there in the courtroom to support him. So it's bittersweet because I know it's the stepping stone to what Georgia uh, Kappelman has repeatedly said uh, after every interview and after Ruth Markella said after every interview, is that they won't stop until... <coughs> everybody who was responsible for this murder are held accountable. And so I I like that Charlie's being held accountable. I really don't like seeing the gaggle of lawyers that he's got surrounded by him. I don't think that that really necessarily will be playing well. This is just a human. This is just someone who knows the fabric of Tallahassee, has lived there. I've also lived in New York. I've lived in Los Angeles. So I know the big city demographic versus the small town demographic, specifically this one. So I just don't really, it makes me nervous that he's got 
all this money to throw at his defense. And he only needs to manipulate things or turn things on their side to get one person. And that makes me very nervous. But I also, you know, I don't think it's a really speaking back to uh, like Dubin. He, me, having lived in New York as long as I did, he, he, he reeks uh, New York um, better than. And I think that happened a bit with the Miami attorneys. They came in, you know, pointing fingers, you know, taking, you know, putting their dukes up. And um, that's just really not the vibe. It's a layback southern town. And I don't know how they're going to react to seeing this wealthy guy with his team of lawyers. While that, that is a small town feeling where they've got the prosecutor of Georgia, which, you know, it's very likable. I just don't know how that's going to play. I don't think the first impression of a normal Tallahassee resident seeing these sort of New York, you know, Northeastern lawyers coming, big city lawyers surrounding this guy, um, and he's knowing that he's so wealthy and he's gotten away with it for so long. I just don't think it's a good look. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, Wesley John Holmes, lest you think we are not a global show watching us uh, from downtown Tokyo, uh, previously uh, from Australia, and then you've got New Zealand in Form NZ. So welcome to both of you. Uh, Judy, just to pick up on that, um, first point was Charlie's family is not there. All of Dan's family is there. Um, does it bother you that they're not sitting there? Um you know, having to watch this um, in person. And what about the second part of that? Do you think that um, it could backfire? Tim Jansen has said that Charlie Adelson should have hired a Tallahassee attorney, uh, possibly even Tim Jansen himself. He says it's a small town. You got to know the inner workings of a small town. Here come these Miami and uh, New York guys, aggressive, um, possibly intimidating. W what do you think of both parts of that? Yeah, well, I agree because, well, first to the first question, I don't think it really matters. I wasn't, I didn't really care either way if his family were there to support him. I knew they probably wouldn't want to be there because, you know, everybody would be staring, you know, looking at them. They're older, they probably have anxiety problems. So I don't think that it's surprising that the parents aren't there. But um, yeah, he probably could have saved a lot of money just by having some sort of local attorney as opposed to hiring this huge team of people coming in from New York City and Miami. So uh, it was just kind of weird seeing that huge team of people. Uh, New Mexico's in the house. So, uh, Richard, sort of an obvious question to you. Let's say you were there, not Josh Dubin. We'll get back to him in a moment. Let's say you were hired. Um, you're a high-priced jury consultant who's been at it for, uh, as you said, 38 years. What are you looking for um, when you're picking the jury for the defense in this case? Who are you looking for? Who's your Who's your prime juror? So it's, 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 it's always a tough question because they're really not demographic profiles that you're looking for. In other words, you're really not looking for old or young. You're not looking for, uh, you know, educated and uneducated because those are, those, are, those are just indicators. Those are labels. You're looking for attitude and experience. And if I'm on the defense side, I'm looking for a very high burden juror, 
somebody who is going to really analyze every little piece of evidence, highly technical people that really don't really like even the concept of circumstantial evidence. They want to see the smoking gun. They want to have, I mean, obviously there is some uh, audio recordings. There's some stuff that they have in this case. So there, there is some of that. But the other thing is they're going to want to see either really high degree of, of, of proof here that he is directly tied to this. Um, the other thing I guess I'm looking for is people who say, you've already convicted three people, so enough is enough. You know, and, and people, one of the interesting questions I think on the questionnaire had to do with people who've been through divorces who've been cut through custody hearings. And I think some of the, some of the people who, have, who are gonna be questioned about their attitudes about these very volatile, because everybody in law knows that one of the most volatile situations is uh, family dissolution and custody hearings. It is the where the judges become the most violent. As a matter of fact, the judge just got murdered um, just the other day uh, by a person who he was ruled against in a, in a custody hearing. And so it's people who understand the volatility and also don't understand necessarily that that may not lead. Even the, the instinct to want to put out something, uh, to want to kill somebody, to want to do that, doesn't necessarily mean that it adds up. I think the last profile I'd be looking for on the defense side is just what we call the lone wolf, somebody who's just not going to get along. In other words, I'm looking for a high conflict jury, some people who are not going to necessarily blend with other people personality-wise or going to just be what I would call polar responders, people who are going to, somebody says something and they're going to always want to present the other point of view. So looking at those dynamics, that's kind of what I'm looking for uh, on the defense side. Um, I did not catch this, but this is why I always say best guess, better community. Helen Stewart, um, what was the strategy from the specialist? I'm assuming this is Dubin here asking if the jurors like the dentist. Um, Richard, um, assuming this question was in fact proposed today, what is the strategy behind asking whether or not you like to go to the dentist? Well, you know, the truth is that people, jurors bring a whole set of their own personal opinions to it. And sometimes like one of the distinctions between Josh Dubin and I is Josh is actually a lawyer. So that's why he's doing the questioning on this. But he's, he's looking for any attitudes that may drive a juror. In other words, what makes them want to find the evidence that will, that will either uh, convict this guy or acquit him? And, and there's a lot of people who just go, I hate dentists. I just can't stand them. There's something about them, you know, that thinks that they're kind of inherently sadistic. And so I think finding out that he's just looking for people who are just inherently don't, are, are not going to like the defendant. Uh, got donuts. She's been tweeting at me. Um, I've, I've missed her. I haven't seen her in the chat, but she has uh, been following this case closely. Phil Markell, Dan's dad, was in court today because he's a great dad. Harvey was not in court today to support his son because he is a horrible, murderous dad. Uh, those are some of the opinions uh, from STS Nation. Uh, Lita Randolph, Joel, how many jurors have been summoned for this case? Uh, that number, uh, the juror perspective pool was 900 i believe 360 is the number of people that were actually uh summoned to this case to answer your question um fancy fiction i asked vinnie paul's hand the same question uh yesterday i'm going to ask you do you think that charlie thought he'd ever be here in leon county um 
facing this uh, potential, uh, these potential 12 jurors as his trial is now underway. Do you think he'd ever imagined in his wildest dreams it would come to this? Hell no. How come? How? Why not? Because if you listen to the wiretap calls and all the stories, and I've heard stories that haven't been out there yet of family dynamics, he has either talked or manipulated his way out of every you know, troubling situation he's been in, um, whether that be, you know, this disability lawsuit that's on pause now. He's got back issues, but there's communication showing that he got back issues while he was like in some massage or brothel in Thailand. You can't make this stuff up. So he's got that disability. He's trying to basically get out of working, in my opinion, by this disability. And Judy knows it. She sees yeah. it. It's, it's, it's a joke. Um, it was so Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah, it was Vietnam. So he's trying to manipulate the system there. I've heard that all through his life, his strategy was to pull one of his parents, usually Donna, and just talk her ear off until he got his way. So, I mean, you look at two, he's doing insider trading with his father, clear as day. Um, You know, and he's also, you know, he just, you know, he's obviously asking girls from strip clubs to come over and privately hang out in his pool. He, he, gets away with all of it. I mean, he talks about how his strategy when he's speeding and he doesn't have his license with him in order to, he got, he got pulled over in order to get out of the ticket. He was wearing scrubs and said that he was an ER doctor on the way to Broward general. He's bragging about this, not only to um, his mother who thinks it's hilarious that he lied to the cops um, saying he's an ER doctor and he's on the way to the hospital. And that's how he got out of this ticket and with no ID. Um, he told Katie that, He's bragging to Katie on the wiretaps about, you know, you just got to wear scrubs. You'll never pay a ticket. They have no way to check. I mean, it's just time after time after time. He has found a way um, to get out of it. And so I just think he thinks that his money, whatever, his, his own delusions, I think he'll get thinks he'll get up on that stand and he'll talk his way out of this. I truly do. Hmm. Uh, we'll see if that is, in fact, the case. Uh, Jerry Conway, uh, Judy, to you, and then I'm going to get back to Richard. Charlie's shoes were awful, followed by this comment. Wonder if they use stage makeup for Charlie. The point is, Judy, um, these high-profile defendants are scrutinized to the T, right? I mean, everyone is looking at everything about them. So how important – I mean, he does look – much different than he had looked with the tan and admittedly on these steroids. Um, how important is it in terms of being uh, presentable in a court of law when you're about to face uh, a jury of your peers? Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. So I always tell my clients how they should dress. Usually people are okay with guessing you know, what you're supposed to wear when you go to court. But I have had clients who, you know, showed up wearing some skimpy teenage girl looking outfit. And I had to tell a client, can you go get something else (laughs) during lunchtime to wear? You know, I had a client who showed up with this like, you know, sorry to say, but thuggish looking tank top with a big gold chain, you know, for his deposition. I'm like, okay, well, this is a discrimination case. Why do you want to look like a stereotype at the deposition? So sometimes people do have to really be careful what they look like and what they're wearing. But I'm sure Charlie's team has already thoroughly researched that. 
So whatever he's wearing, I'm sure they think that's the way to make him look presentable. Hmm. Uh, Jason Truth. Joel, you never addressed my comment saying you and Vinny look like you could be brothers. What I would do for those blue eyes. If I had Vinny's blue eyes, who knows where I would have ended up. But uh, here I am. Um, Richard, to you, uh, just quickly on that point, uh, where where on your uh, lists uh, that you check off is presenting the defendant in an appealing way? How high up is that on your list? Well, it's... It, the. The question really is not necessarily about appealing. It has to do with how, what do you want? How do you want your your defendant to appear? Because jurors are are looking at that defendant from the moment they walk into the courtroom, and they're analyzing: Does this person look like they are the people that that could have done these crimes here? So they're judging the nonverbals. It's not just what they're wearing. It's how they're acting, how they perceive their attitude and their demeanor. And all of that goes into the package. What they're looking for is a certain type of authenticity to understand what it is. So if you want to present him as this sort of hapless guy who doesn't really know what's going on. Yes, he was really upset because his sister was going through this and he made some crazy comments periodically, but really didn't have anything to do with this plot then you want to kind of portray him that way. And you don't want to dress him in the Armani's and have him come on in and super polished and you don't want to have him looking all cocky and stuff like that. You, you, so you, you're sort of trying to figure out what's, what's the thing. But the one thing to keep in mind always is jurors' BS meter is really high. They're looking for how is the defendant going to try and sell me on something too. So you have to be really careful that it ha there has to be a vestige of authenticity there because jurors can look through it and can say, okay, you're selling me. And so you have to be careful that it is consistent with your story in, that you're going to be presenting in, in trial. Uh, the psychology of this is fascinating. My father, uh, may he rest in peace, is was a psychiatrist, my mother a uh, licensed therapist, so I find this part of it really interesting. Look at this fancy. Meow now, 21. Fancy, would you marry me? Uh, you're getting a proposal. Uh, your response, Fancy? No comment. No comment. There you go. Uh, very fancy-like to not give uh, a comment on that. On that. Um, how about this from Jason Truth again? Does anyone on the panel want to put percentage-wise how likely it is that Wendy will be further investigated and or charged as an accomplice in this heinous murder? Fancy, back to you on this. So Tim Jansen has been quite vocal, um, as has John Singer a little bit, um, John less so. But Tim really does not see an indictment coming, despite the fact that Carl Steinbeck has uh, – listed over 100-plus reasons why Wendy Adelson should be indicted as part of a running series we have on STS. Do you think um, that there is a chance that Wendy, Donna, Harvey follow suit here and end up in Leon County? Fancy. Oh, sorry, I didn't, I didn't, I missed the fancy. Um, yes. I do. She, uh, you know, whatever the reason, it's on paper, black and white. She is an unindicted co-conspirator. Um, she is every picture, every sort of org chart the prosecution has ever blasted anywhere has had her picture on it. Um, and if you are watching that trial, even pure comatose 
and watching that last trial, it was very clear Georgia was directly implicating Wendy on several times, questioning her about driving up to the murder, you know, just even getting snarky with her, like just basically saying her tone was, I know you're lying to me. Well, let's just get through this as quick as possible so I can introduce, get you to introduce what I need to into evidence. I mean, it was really, I mean, you know, she basically insinuated that Wendy was on it several times. So I just, I don't see, and I know Georgia has said many times, I'm going to need something else. I'm going to need another piece of evidence to prosecute any more of the Adelsons. And that, at that time, she was saying things like that. Um, that was before Charlie was arrested. And the minute that, that Dolce Vita enhancement was done, I know it was on the eve of Katie's retrial, and, but that was enhanced. They had Charlie. They took it in front of a grand jury and they charged him. So I just don't think everyone's like, oh, Don is just going to be charged on the, the eve. You know, it's just, I don't think Georgia would say that and then, you know, do that without getting anything further. As far as we know on Donna, it really took that Dulce Vita to make the Charlie arrest. So it makes me think they're after them. They know they have all the time in the world um, to prosecute um, Donna, Wendy and possibly Harvey. Um, but I do think I do think. Donna, for sure, will be arrested. I don't know what point. Um, and I have a, I, you know, in my heart, I believe that Wendy is at the center of all this. And I really hope she gets held accountable. For me, I think she is just disgusting as a lawyer, the way that she repeatedly lied on the stand both times. And I really don't understand how people in her life accept her saying she doesn't watch any media about this case or that she has never talked to her mother, brother, and father about the murder that of the person they all hated as a group. So, you know, I really, I really do hope they're further arrests. And if they're not, it's this is the only case I've ever looked into as a bystander, you know, reading the docket, learning the criminal justice system as it goes. And it's not lost on me. It is about a murder of a criminal law professor. But I would say what it will teach me if they get away with this is it's just going to be very disheartening about our criminal justice system. I understand it, but it's it's just the, you know, like Georgia said, don't let the way they planned it be the way they get away with it. And that's what we've seen so far. And that's what really scares me, that the, there's just not going to be justice at the end. God, God forbid Ruth Markell or Phil Markell pass away, you know, and never get it. Um, you know, I just really hope it happens from a human component. But I understand the law is the law. And if you're going to go for somebody, you know, if you're going to take that swing at Wendy or Donna or Harvey, I want them to hit the ball. So I'll wait. But I do think Donna for sure, Wendy 50-50, Harvey, I don't think so. He just was kept, I mean, I think he knew all along, but he just didn't move any of the pieces to implicate him. That's my thought. And my guess is Donna is the most uh, nervous of a wreck of the uh, three that you just mentioned. Becky Ireland, look at this. Just subscribe to Katie Cool Lady. Uh, Bonnie Lee Lopez, don't call it a crush, but where aware is John Singer? Uh, he had a last-minute conflict. He will be back with us uh, next week. And uh, we're working on a huge show for Thursday with uh, David Latt who knows Dan from Harvard Law and is uh, a very prominent legal blogger um, and possibly Mark Garagos coming on. Not fully confirmed yet, uh, but that would be Thursday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. More of the uh, coverage about the Charlie Adelson trial, of course. Uh, Dan Martell at the center of that. Um, Judy, just 
to uh, piggyback off of Fancy. So you just heard her say that she does think that Donna and Wendy, that the long arm of the law will catch up to them eventually, not Harvey so much. Do you agree with that? Yes. And actually, just a few days ago, I made this short video just explaining why I don't think Harvey is going to be arrested. So that's just based on what's been made publicly available. So we still don't know what Katie is going to say, what her proffer said, what other evidence the prosecution has. So I hope they all get what they deserve. But, you know, it's kind of iffy, especially in terms of Harvey. What's the Cliff's notes on Harvey, uh, the one or two sentence uh, summary of as to is why there, you don't? Yeah. I can't summarize it in just one <laughs> to two sentences. That's why I made a video about it. All right. Well, then go to Judy's uh, go to Judy's <laughs> YouTube channel. Check it out. Asian American Legal Focus. Uh, everyone here, by the way, I can see Tim Jansen. Uh, I don't know, offering up a rye W. R.Y. smile um, after hearing that you guys think that uh, Wendy and Don are going down because I know Tim thinks that the uh, the buck stops with Charlie. Time will tell, but it'll be interesting to hear uh, Tim's reaction. So back to jury stuff because we've got one of the preeminent jury consultants in all the land here. Forget Josh Dubin. We've got Richard Gabriel. So uh, Richard, uh, one interesting point today. I was kind of laughing when I saw this. Tallahassee's mayor, his name is John Daly, and he was among the first group of prospective jurors called this morning, and he was uh, quite quickly dismissed. Uh, You see that happen often where you see the mayor of a town uh, summoned and then he's uh, he could be a good juror, couldn't he? It can happen. The the challenge with somebody like that, I mean, it does happen. You know, when I recently did a jury selection in Washington, D.C., and you had all kinds of heads of agencies and all kinds of, of people there. So, you know, and when you're in a big city, like I think uh, hearkening way back to the Winona Ryder shoplifting trial, John Peters uh, was a juror on the case, a producer was on the case. He was sat as a juror. So you get, when you're in big cities, even in smaller cities, Everybody's got to answer their jury summons, and you do get that periodically. The challenge for somebody who's like a mayor in terms of impartiality is they're supposed to be impartial, but he also also has to think about how will his verdict affect his public perception and his campaign reelection. And so there's all kinds of things that kind of enter into mind. You have to talk to uh, a guy like that to find out a little bit more about what are his concerns about sitting as juror and then rendering a verdict either for guilt or acquittal? couple of questions coming in for Richard. The first one from uh, Dorothy Parker. To what extent are Charlie's jury consultants researching potential jurors? Oh, they're doing all the research. You know, it's very common these days. Once you have the list, you're getting on the social media platforms, you're evaluating this, um, you know, to really figure out Who is this person? Because when jurors come into the courtroom, you get only a very uh, selective amount of information on the jury questionnaire. There's also lots of rules about what you can and can't ask in in the actual voir dire process. So you're trying to find out a little bit more and and people are intimidated in the courtroom. They're sometimes not as candid as they might want to be. Uh, And so you're trying to find out, you're looking on their Facebook pages uh, to see a little bit about who they are. Have they 
blogged about something? Have they posted about things one way or the other? And what can that tell you about their personality? So that jury consulting firm is doing a lot of research into the juror backgrounds. There's obviously some rules. You can't friend a juror. You can't follow them because you, you can't, you have to avoid any even inadvertent contact with a juror because that could be considered jury tampering. So you have to be super careful how you're doing it. But whatever's public information about that juror, you, you want to do your research about it. Uh, K the Geeky Angel, a uh, question for Richard Gabriel. Why are jurors excluded when asked if they or relatives slash friends were involved in law enforcement? It's happened to me a couple of times. Yeah, it's a very common question in any criminal case because for people who are involved in law enforcement, um, especially things they can often, now it's, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, but typically when you're on the defense side, you're going to be really cautious about a juror who's family and friends, because you're going to always favor the investigation that's done by law enforcement and the arrest and the procedure. You, that's, that's very natural for a person who's involved in law enforcement. So, but they're also, they can be highly critical if they feel that somehow law enforcement didn't dot all its I's or cross its T's when they were doing that investigation. So you have to look at that person real carefully, but as a general rule, the defense is looking to exclude people who either themselves are in law enforcement or have family and friends that are involved. Uh, Sonny Tanner was obviously in court. Josh was a very pleasant person. He held the door for me and made eye contact and smiled. Uh, Josh Jubin happens to be a frequent guest on uh, the Joe Rogan experience. I'm coming for you, Joe Rogan. I'm coming to take over your number one podcast spot in 93 countries. Not stop until I get there. But um, he's very well-spoken, Josh Jubin. That's how I first uh, heard of him. But I can certainly see and understand where people are getting kind of this uh, – attitude about him being from New York and uh, being annoyed and aggravated by it. I can certainly see that there's, dare I say, a little bit of self-righteousness there. And I think people can sometimes uh, read that. And I'm curious if that is happening. Um, Fancy, you are one of the um, one of the news breakers when it comes to this case, uh, constantly posting new information. What is new that you've reported that you think is relevant to what is happening right now? Um, that I can share? Please. Otherwise, um, you'd have to just think about it. I'd have to uh, eliminate all of you. Um, I think that, <laughs> well, I know one thing Katie Cool Lady told me that was interesting that because of the topic and the audience, the members that on the show right now is that, um, you know, we're talking a lot about the prominence of this jury consultant, Dubin. And, um, Joel, have you ever seen, uh, have you ever seen Joe Rogan do stand up? Um, I have, I have, I saw not, I mean, I've, seen him in, I've actually seen him in person just cause I'm a, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm a diehard, uh, fight fan, been to a bunch of fights in Vegas, seen, not a huge fan of Rogan. So I got to be honest, but yeah. I, I respect what he does. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but I'm neither a huge fan of his stand up nor a lot of what he says. Right. About I just but wanted anyway. to get that on record, not for your sake, <laughs> but, um, but I, um, new news. Oh, uh, Katie cool lady told me that, you know, despite sort of the, the slickness and the um, macho-ness. Um, she maybe is talking about this at a video, but she reported to me um, that, you know, uh, there were there were a couple men on, on the jury poll that were kind of buying into that, that toughness, she noticed. And um, 
She also made the observation, and this is no no shade, but it is it's human behavior. It's it's you know fair or unfair. But she said in between Charlie and um, this Dubin, Rashbaum kind of looked like a little like a weak. It, it made Rashbaum weakened and somehow like this this hardliner and then he's going to disappear and and I, I don't know it just it's a weird dynamic having these lawyers come in and out um with different different mojo and impressions on I mean these are the first these are the first impressions of the jury so um I thought that was interesting that you know that maybe there's a little gender component that tough you know New York guy might appeal a little bit more to the men so that was something she told me which I thought was an interesting observation um I don't know. It was it was told to me um, from a credible source that last week, I don't know if you've reported on this, um, supposedly I heard that Catherine Magdano spent two very long days at the Leon County Courthouse. I don't yeah, know. We've, we've heard uh, t- 12 yeah. hours. Uh, she yeah, was interviewed that's for 12 well. hours. Yeah. Um, again, Tim Jansen sort of shrugged that off. To me, that seems like a substantial amount of time. But what do I know? I'm just a former TV news guy. But you I think that's... that's- I feel that same way, Joel. It's like you, you, you get these news and then these lawyers come in and just kind of like <laughs> rain on our parades constantly. It's like the, a theme for me. Um, but so, yeah, so Tim said it was a nothing burger. Uh, pretty much in so many words, but um, I don't know. I think there's always surprises. So we'll see. Tim's going to make fun of me after the show and put me in my place. But we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, this question, I want to go to, to Judy on this. But for look at this, uh, Agent 99. What a great show. Get smart. Um, love that show. Um, will Luis Rivera testify, Judy? Uh, there are a bunch of people who yes. are in question. He will. And, yeah. and uh, hang on one sec. McSpunky here. Look at this. This guy's one of the most generous human beings. I was calling him MC Spunky because what do I know? But it's McSpunky. Ten more uh, gifted surviving the survivor memberships. Uh, how come you're so confident that uh, Luis is going to testify? Sure because he was there for the first couple of trials and this is part of his plea deal. So he got the deal by agreeing to be a state's witness. So he's also been transported from Arizona, I believe from federal prison. So why would they bring him all the way here if he didn't have to testify? So. He's yeah, like and I've a got, central character in yeah, this and, case. And obviously the other big question, um, and then we'll circle back to Richard, but I'd love to get you and Fancy's take on Katie Magbanawa. Of course, there was supposed to be a proffer in the works. That went very quiet. Um, there's a transport order. As far as we know, she's in Leon County. Does Katie take the stand in your opinion, Judy? I think so. I mean, it. All signs point to it, especially when Carl mentioned, was it just yesterday on your show, about Katie spending two days in the courtroom talking last week. So why would she do that if she's useless? Uh, Fancy, what, what do you think? Are we going to see Katie McBanawa and what is she going to reveal when she's on that stand? I know you have a crystal ball. Yeah, I have a no idea, but I've had um, one prosecutor tell me, hey, it happens all the time. Just put her up there. She's got good reasons for lying. Uh, it, it happens all the time. And this is someone who is uh, knows the details of this case. So they, they were like, hey, I do, you know, you know, you just put her up there. 
give a good reason of why she lied. And, you know, the juries accept that. Um, and then, you know, I hear people like John Singer tells me that he's so scared <laughs> that the prosecution is going to put her on because they've got a pretty, pretty tight case. They have a lot of evidence and um, fear to put her on would just give Rosh Brahm a sideshow to distract and, you know, muddy the waters. So um, I don't, I don't know. I really don't. I'm so interested, interested to see, but I understand both those viewpoints, those legal viewpoints, which, you know, I just have a human viewpoint, which is not a legal one and most likely be wrong. So I guess I got to listen to them, but I, I don't know. Judy, what do you think? Yeah, we don't know. We're just guessing. So, but my guess is I'm weighing yeah. towards, yes, she probably is going to testify. And we will uh, we will soon find out. I think Hart Matterhorn says it was disgusting how this lawyer made quick mention of the victim, then made this big show to point out poor little Charlie sitting there, sad and lonely, and his daddy's jacket uh, as the real victim. So again, uh, I think optics and presentation in this case incredibly important. And uh, having uh, Rashbaum, Daniel Rashbaum. Again, I've said this before, by all accounts, is a great guy with a difficult job here. Um, and he's not a typical Miami guy in the sense that he's not pulling into the courthouse in his Ferrari. He's not wearing very flashy suits. Kind of a uh, more low-key Miamian, if you will. But um, again, Tim Jansen thinks it was not the greatest idea to not have a local attorney. We'll see how it plays out. Um, Kendall B. here. Um Richard, to you, and I think there's another question here. Could the jury be rigged? I think maybe uh, the better question is, can a jury be uh, somewhat manipulated by people who are experts like Josh Dubin? And dare I say you, maybe <laughs> manipulate is too strong a word, but uh, you guys are, uh, and, and I mean this with all due respect, very calculated in how you're picking the jury. Um, if Dubin is great at, at his job, is he going to find that one guy who is uh, – or one woman, I mean that uh, in a non-gender way, um, is he going to pick that one person who is going to uh, have some doubt? Well, it's, I mean, let's face it, the, the, the role of all advocates to a certain extent is manipulation. So whether it's myself, whether it's Josh Dubin, whether it's the attorneys in the case, they are trying to advocate for a specific outcome. They are trying to orchestrate a different way. As I said before, it's very difficult when you are selecting and you, to say, I'm going to try and somehow sneak this one juror with an agenda onto the panel in order to get an acquittal in my favor. That's pretty tough. I mean, the, what, you're, what you are doing is you're doing your best to try and get a favorable jury. I'm not going to uh, mince words about that. You are trying to get a favorable jury. That being said, the other side is also looking very carefully, who are those lone wolf jurors? Who are those people who are going to be outliers and, and are going to try and hang this jury or somebody with a hidden agenda? That's where you, the other side, on the prosecution side, because I've done both defense work and I've done prosecution work, and both sides are really trying to say, okay, who can I eliminate that's going to be my highest risk on the panel there that can be a problem here. And with that, if both sides are doing their jobs effectively, you do tend to end up with a jury that's kind of in the middle, that's neutral. If you're doing, and if the judge allows you to really talk to jurors, uh, that is sort of how you're doing it. So it, it, it's very difficult for you to actually 
rig a jury in your favor. And this is not the runaway jury by John Grisham where they're all, you know, tailing jurors and, and trying to trying to intimidate them. That's that's really not what's happening here. But you are trying to get a favorable jury. Uh, here's another couple of questions for you, Richard. One of uh, Josh Dubin's questions to the jury today was how many had heard of Georgia Kaplman, uh, of course, the lead prosecutor here before the trial. Uh, that seems like an obvious question, but uh, and I think the yeah. obvious answer is that they you know, wouldn't be tainted by anything that she's done in the past. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're always trying to find out who, who knows everybody in this case. Do they have a, a favorable or a negative impression of that particular person? Because again, the truth is we, we talk about this sort of fair and impartial as if a jury comes into this as a blank slate. And that's just not realistic, especially in a high profile trial. Everybody comes loaded in with a lot of information about the trial and sometimes the evidence itself and comes in with ideas about the, the even the witnesses and the prosecutors and the defense side in the case. That's what you so see, you're really trying to find out what people know, what their opinions are, and whether that's gonna influence them and how they think about the case. By the way, someone asked earlier if we're live streaming from Tallahassee, uh, the, the trial. The answer to that is no, but I'm going to be doing a, a lot of what we call news live shots. And uh, the COE is working on getting me a stick mic and a tripod so I can get people outside the courthouse, players, and uh, like the fancy fictions of the world, we'll put a mask on her face uh, so no one knows who she is. But we're going to talk to people uh, like Katie Cool Lady and Fancy Fiction in Tallahassee, and those we will stream live. So periodically we'll be going live, and then we'll do the shows at night if uh, I can figure out how to do it, technically speaking. And there's about a 50-50 shot that uh, I can't figure it out, but we'll see. Don't worry. We'll be live somehow. Uh, Don Hagerman, back to you, Richard. Um, I believe there's a limit to disqualifying a juror by each side. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, first of all, there's the, the, there's unlimited challenges for cause. In other words, each side can say, look, I, I, I want to make a motion for cause on juror X because they've said they can't be fair or they said that they have a, an opinion that he's guilty or they've heard something about the witnesses in the case. You can make that motion to the judge. A judge can, in his own discretion, uh, say, yes, I'm going to eliminate that person for cause. And that's unlimited. They, you can do as many of those as you want. And so, uh, but each side, and I'm going to turn to Judy for this. How, how many strikes does each side have in this case? Has the judge yeah. made a determination I on that? I think it's 13 based okay. on what mentors lawyers said. So I don't practice in Florida. So I think it's 13. Yeah, it's case. a lot. I mean, there's a lot of strikes. So what you're doing in the calculation there, so this is where jury selection becomes a little bit of a game of chess because you're taking a look at what the whole roster of jurors are in there and you're looking for where the groups are and how to strategically use your strikes to get to a better group of jurors or how many strikes you're gonna to need to get rid of your worst jurors. Because sometimes in a trial, you can't eliminate all your bad jurors. But what you're trying to do is also look for leadership. In other words, who are the people that are not just necessarily, they may have a couple negative responses, 
but maybe just following whoever the leaders are. Because the truth is, you're actually not selecting a jury of 12. You're selecting a jury of two or three. In other words, who are the opinion leaders that are really going to dominate the discussion and deliberations? That's who you're really concentrating on to try and understand that. So you're using your strikes to try and get to a good group of jurors to sometimes stop in time. So there's a whole very complicated analysis that goes into how you use those 13 strikes. Um, by the way, Chelsea Whitaker, did I miss Delphi? You did not. That's at nine o'clock. Um, the good news is it's at nine. The bad news for these guests is I've got nowhere to go. So I'm going to keep them a little bit longer if they will oblige me. Uh, Debbie Lanier here says, um, fancy, I'm going to toss this to you. Um, just because Charlie's parents aren't there for jury selection, do you think there's any chance in hell they show up? Or do you think that, that uh, Donna is just too afraid of, you know, those uh, handcuffs being slapped on her wrist if she was to walk into the Leon County Courthouse. Is there any chance, in your opinion, that we see them? No, and I don't think it's because they're somehow scared of being close to the prosecution or feet away from Georgia. They don't want the perp pictures. They don't want pictures all over the Tallahassee Democrat, the Daily Mail. I mean, they don't want the pictures of them sitting in the courtroom when they're clearly implicated. And so I think it's really all about image. And I think they would be there if they, they could. But I think they don't they don't want to get anywhere near that courtroom because they don't want their picture all over the place. Um, I really do think that it is that simple. Mm. Oh, can well, I, add, I would like to ask a question before I forget, because I will forget. I tried to remember it three times already. Go but for I it. do have a question about sort of the process today um, that I don't understand as a lay person is that sort of after all of, going through everything today, and I think they, they brought up a group of jurors at the end, but at the very end, they asked for a change of venue. And um, I was just curious, is that is that indicative of the fact that they're not pleased with what they're seeing from the jurors? So if you want, I can chime in a little yeah, bit. Please, right. I'm asking you pretty much. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know exactly, but the truth is that the order of proof in order to change a venue, you have to show that it's going to be difficult for you, if not impossible, for you to seat a fair and impartial jury. And sometimes from the jury questionnaires, you can make a change of venue motion. Sometimes it's, this is just to establish a record, even for appeal, if for some reason he does get convicted. But sometimes what you can do is say, okay, I've made my motion for change of venue. The judge has denied it. We've spoken to X number of jurors, Your Honor, of those so many people have said they've heard and seen about this case. We're renewing our motion for change of venue based on what we're hearing and seeing because a lot of people are saying, yes, I've heard and seen about this case. Yes, I think he's guilty. So therefore, we think it's appropriate to move the venue here. And that's possibly, I don't know exactly why, but that's possibly why they made it today after hearing and seeing from some jurors. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, Becky Ireland joined the 70,000. Uh, it's hard to believe this time last year we were about 1,500 subscribers. Today we're at 70,000. So thank you to STS Nation. I always say best guest, better community. Uh, could not have done it without you. Uh, but we're just getting started. I just told you I got to catch Joe Rogan, number one in 93 countries. I got my work cut out for me. Spotify, I hope you're listening. Um, look at this. Global show. Ireland is in the house. And uh, Judy, you're about to feel the pressure because you've got uh, one of the preeminent jury consultants. But the question is for you. Look at this. What about Georgia's leadership question? Judy, 
Not Richard, Judy. Does the state want leaders or not? What's your um, response? And let's see if you're right, and we'll have Richard uh, respond. Sure. If the leader seems to be a very intelligent, thoughtful person who will pay attention to details, why not? Richard, did she pass the test? <laughs> well, I think Judy's correct in that you want the right leaders <laughs> here. It's not just necessarily intelligence because sometimes, again, sometimes on the defense side, I'm looking for people who are very intelligent, but sometimes overly analytical, like an engineer or something like that. And sometimes those people can create their own reasonable doubt. So it's a matter of sort of what's the leadership. Sometimes the prosecution, you know, and sometimes the process is both sides are looking for leaders and using their strikes on the on the high profile leadership people in the jury pool. So you actually don't end up with a group of leaders. Both sides have to look at it that way. One is sometimes the prosecution says, I'm okay with a, with a group of people who are just sort of want to follow along. They may be more deferential to authority. And obviously the prosecution carries a little bit more authority than the defense. And so sometimes the prosecution doesn't mind necessarily a group of people don't have necessarily a lot of leadership, won't push back as hard on them. That being said, sometimes the, you know, the defense can want people who are not necessarily as smart or as as analytical as that because they want to propose an alternative conspiracy theory to them, and hopefully a juror will latch onto that too. So it's it's an interesting question. Both sides, I think, are looking at leadership, and typically it poses a risk. So both sides are going to be trying to get rid of, unless they're absolutely certain that leader is going to be in their camp. Um, Judy, this is a question that came up yesterday, and I don't think we answered it, uh, from New Britain Pauly. Is it possible to get a last-minute plea deal if Charlie decides to fully, fully cooperate at that last yes. moment? Yes. Yeah. It is. I'm pretty sure. I think other attorneys have discussed this also. He can still cut a deal. Uh, Kelly Jansen, the fear of Donna and Harvey running now. Um, fancy. Do you think, because uh, there's been a lot of talk about this um, among people following the case, that they might just hop over to a little place like Thailand or someone that doesn't have an extradition deal with the United States? Do you think that's reasonable? you think there's any chance Don and Harvey uh, skip town? Yes, absolutely. They're cornered. Their freedom's on the line. I think they would have problems leaving um, the grandchildren, uh, but with an, and when I say grandchildren, I mean Wendy's two boys, yeah. because Robert, the older brother, thinks that his family is in all this. And he does that because he knows his family. He knows his family hated Dan with a passion. And he knows that when he went and tried to talk about Dan's murder, not necessarily Dan's murder. He didn't get a, I don't think he got a lot of questions. He talked on a podcast about this. But he also, I think, is important to note is that he said that his minute that, you know, he wanted to talk about the arrest and the minute the family shut down, he knows his family, you know, your family, if you, you know, were to confront your family about a murder of another family member, and they were giving you the vibes, you know, your family. And that's when you have to protect your own family, like Robert did and with his children and moved away and broke all contact. He's not going to go to Thanksgiving with people he thinks murdered somebody in their family. But um, so those two grandchildren, but I think Wendy's boys would be the thing that would be most hard for them to leave. Um, and also their pride, because right now they're still saying, you know, we're framed, essentially, 
you know, we've been extorted. So I don't think, um, I do think, I do worry about them hopping in a boat and going to Cuba. And you heard, uh, I heard on the wiretaps and posted on my channel that shortly after the arrest of Sigfredo Garcia, Charlie was signing up for a private jet charter where he Mm. could sort of skirt, you know, the airlines in the airport and sign up for this charter. I don't know, think it would necessarily take him to his final destination, could, but it possibly could get him to skirt some, you know, the airport. Uh, and so, you know, that was, I think, ultimately his lawyer at the time convinced him maybe to stay. But uh, I do think that Harvey and Donna, man, if they, if it, the heat gets a little more, I mean, I think I could see them going out to live the next decade or two of their lives somewhere completely away from all of this. Um, but... Yeah, I do worry about it. Okay. Uh, a couple more things I want to get to Richard about, but first, uh, Catalina asking, have the Dolce Vita wiretaps been included uh, as evidence? They are admissible. The transcripts are not. Uh, the enhanced tape is admissible. A lot of people think that that is the death knell for Charlie Adelson. Uh, how about this, Judy? And then I'm going to hop back to Richard. Does the panel think Katie Magbanawa can still get a deal? Is that possible? Yes, I, I think so. Yeah. I, I don't know for sure the procedure there. I thought that the judge would ultimately have to order any sort of reduction in sentence for her, but I'm not sure if that has to take place before Charlie's trial or before she testifies versus afterwards. Um, so, Richard, a couple of things here that I noted. A handful of jurors were excused uh, in the morning for health reasons and other issues. Jurors can be dismissed for a number of reasons, including if they are 70 years of age or older, if they're expecting mothers or expected mothers, uh, parents of children under six or who have performed state jury service in the last year. Um, all these reasons came into play today. Uh, nothing here really uh, you know, earth shattering. One prospective juror today said that he knew Dan Markell. And the quote was to this day, when I drive down Trescott, that's the street, it's hard not to think about him. Uh, this man said, and hopefully he didn't suffer. Um, I assume if you're Josh Dubin, um, immediately you're eliminating that, uh, juror. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, anybody who knows anybody close to the case pretty much is going to be gone here. Um, you know, that's that's sort of a given. That's why they go through these very extensive uh, procedures here. There's a whole, obviously, the criteria for hardship, what we call it, is as you listed out, you know, anybody's of a certain age, anybody who's also has an extreme financial hardship. Also, uh, you, they just can't take this much time off the work and their employer won't pay them. Uh, people are taking care of small kids. People are taking care of elderly people, medical reasons. All that are good find excuses uh, for getting dismissed from jury service. And of course, people who know people, people who um, obviously have seen and heard about the case. And obviously a few jurors have said, yeah, I I know about this case. I I think he's guilty. That's obviously a cause challenge. So there's a number of reasons why. That's why they start out with 900. Because some people even just don't even show up. And that's why they have to start with so many. And there's a lot of reasons why people can be excused. Uh, this is an interesting question from Tia Bawa. Can a jury consultant, Richard, who has found disqualifying information about a juror, say on Facebook, decide to hold on to that information so it can be used in appeal in case Charlie or a defendant is convicted? Is that something that people do? It's a really interesting question. And the truth is that... <laughs> 
as as an attorney, once you have the information, I think you if you have something that you think might be disqualifying, I think there is an obligation to actually present that to the court. Um, you know, typically when you find out something, let's say you some something online, you would typically want to eliminate that juror knowing that information. So you don't typically ask the juror that in court, but you then talk to the judge and you say, Your Honor, this juror on their questionnaire said X online, they've listed this, we think that is probably disqualifying, or they say they haven't heard about the case and they posted online that they have strong opinions about the case. We think they should be dismissed for cause. So typically you don't want to be used on appeal, you want to use it to eliminate that juror right then and there. That being said, there are times where you find out information about jurors during the trial after they've been seated. And then sometimes you can use that information in an appeal in the event that Charlie gets convicted. You can say, look, this we found out afterwards that this juror actually had, had a lot of opinions about this, or they knew a certain one of the witnesses and they didn't say that on the questionnaire. That kind of conflicting information can be used in appeal to try and overturn a conviction. Um, so Josh Dubin, we talked about him earlier. I pulled a tweet. I promised I would read it. This is from uh, an STS Nation member, uh, Parisa Marathi, who tweeted this at me. Um, and Richard, she said, big mistake for Charlie Adelson's defense team to have Josh Dubin in his box. He looks very aggressive, unwelcoming, unfriendly, arrogant, and pompous, kind of like his client. What do you think? Is it a mistake? Well, first impressions matter. And because in jury selection, the first priority is can you, what kind of, how can you improve the quality of information that you're getting from jurors so that you can make those cause challenges and peremptory strikes? That's number one. Number two is you are building a relationship with jurors here. So there is something, and the thing that's crazy is that sometimes some, as you've discussed already, some people are really receptive to that. They want that aggressive defense kind of thing, and they admire it. They expect a defense team to be aggressive. So sometimes Josh may fit in his, in their view, what they would expect in a defense attorney. They don't necessarily discount him for it. That being said, he's right. I mean, if if you're going to grate on it, and this is why sometimes I think it is a good idea to have local counsel. If you know the people, if you know, have a sense of the people are there. You know, look, when I was doing the Phil Spector case, um, one of our lead attorneys was Bruce Cutler, who was uh, John Gotti's lawyer. And he was a typical New Yorker and he came into town and his style was very different than Los Angeles style there. And I could see the jurors trying to figure out how whether they liked him or not. So it's something to consider. It's not the be all or the end all, but it is something that you really can think about because you are building a relationship with that jury, with jury selection. By the way, I once interviewed for a job uh, as a correspondent in LA and I wore, I was working in New York and I wore a pinstripe suit and they said to me, you look a little too much like a financial guy, and I screwed myself. I should have worn—I uh, don't know—I should have had tat sleeves and like an unbuttoned shirt for LA, but I went the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. um, 
two quick things, and then we're going to wrap it up and get final thoughts from everybody. Um, so Got Donuts tweeted at me. Joel, did you notice today, uh, this is for you, Richard, again, how the great Georgia Kappelman, and by the way, she's a bit of a cult of personality. Everyone seems to love Georgia and her no-nonsense style. That's not the tweet. The tweet is, did you notice today how the great Georgia asked the jury if the person driving the getaway car in the commission of a crime is as guilty of the person they drove to commit a robbery where a murdering of a store clerk also happened? Uh, Then the defense immediately asked for a sidebar. Uh, The obvious implication here, uh, Richard, is she's, you know, setting up, teeing up the fact that if you're an accomplice, you're just as guilty, right? Yeah, so that's so I talked about, you know, getting good quality information, building rapport. The third leg of the stool, as it were, in this is is attorneys do plant themes during voir dire as well. And that is clearly her saying to the jury, hey, I want you to do it. If you really want to find out, um, I would have phrased the question a little bit differently if I were on the prosecution side, which is to find out from people who don't think people, the person who drives the getaway car is as guilty because those are people that you want to identify and get rid of because you think, no, 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 they may not be as in on it as possible. But she's planting a theme. This guy's as guilty as the people who committed the crime. And I understand that's what attorneys do sometimes in their voir dire. And one final thing here with uh, respect to Georgia, she asked that the judge, Judge Stephen Everett, include today mention of burden of proof, presumption of innocence, and the right to remain silent in his instructions to possible jury members. What's that about? Uh, Again, to me? Yeah, to you, Richard. Well, (laughs) it's obviously it's important for jurors. Jurors don't really understand what the burden of proof is. They've heard, they've watched a lot of law and order, they've heard beyond a reasonable doubt a lot. But the truth is that they don't really understand that. And when I've been on the defense side in some of these cases, actually jurors think the burden of proof is on the defendant. So it's a little counterintuitive for some jurors to believe that somehow, because they think, well, okay, you've been accused of this terrible thing. Go ahead and tell me why you didn't do it. So the judge has to somehow step in and go, here's what it really is. Here's why the burden of proof is on the prosecution. It's a high burden of proof. And also, right not to testify, Fifth Amendment rights. A lot of jurors do think, hey, if you're accused of doing something terrible, why wouldn't you get on the stand and defend yourself? And so to to instruct them about that helps to reorient a lot of jurors who may not understand some of these basic principles. Uh, well, we are uh, covering the Charlie Adelson trial, uh, gavel to gavel, as they say, uh, tomorrow. Uh, by the way, tonight, just so uh, you remember, and I don't know how I'm going to do it, 35 minutes minutes from now, we're going to be doing the Delphi murder case. And then tomorrow, 7 p.m., we're back to Caitlin Armstrong, the love triangle out of Austin, Texas. And we'll be back on this on Thursday. Uh, The person who's all over this from the beginning, Judy Tsang, the founder and owner of the Wake Law Office, born in Chicago, raised in Georgia. She went to the University of California uh, at Berkeley, no small feat there, and then uh, topped it with the Georgetown University Law Center. And she hosts Asian American Legal Focus on YouTube. Uh, I had a question that the COE just removed for you, Judy. So, Judy, how dare you, COE? Uh, Judy, uh, your final thoughts. What are you... uh, What's, what's your biggest um, 
anticipation, I should say, that was not the question, but what's your biggest sort of anticipation right now? What are you looking forward to the most? I'm looking forward to seeing if Katie testifies because that's a big question mark, which, you know, reasonable people have been differing on. So we'll see. And, and if she does testify, um, how early on do you think she would? Um, let me guess, because based on the previous trials, they did a lot of, you know, background foundation, you know, law enforcement, the neighbor who found Dan, um, the medical examiners. So I'm just guessing if she does testify, it might be towards towards the end, maybe, of the prosecutor's presentation. Just a guess. Everyone hold Judy to that. The end of the state's case. There you go. Uh, there she is behind her avatar, the mysterious fancy fiction who maybe I will have the pleasure of meeting if she's in full uh, in a full mask, full facial mask. She remains anonymous, hosting a YouTube channel with the same name, Fancy Fiction, where she has painstakingly posted important videos highlighting pertinent wiretaps related to the players, some implicated, others not in the Dan Markell case. Um, does the troll on Fancy's shoulder have a name, Fancy? That is a question. Charlie's Nightmare. <laughs> Fancy, um, this is not the right wording, but uh, my mind is mush. But what are you sort of most looking forward to? I don't think anyone's looking forward to any of this because of the heinous nature um, and by the way, someone I think what Katie Cool Lady was saying, that comment that I brought up, which I was going to ask Judy, which I will now ask you, was that the defense had a theme of this. Oh, this happened so long ago. Um, that'd be kind of a weird defense strategy, um, I think. Um, but again, what do I know? But what are you anticipating the most? Um, well, just to go on that, it happened so long ago. Well, then let's just stop all the rape kits. You know, let's just let's just keep the rape kits. Let's just burn them all away. Too long ago, not worth chasing, which is ridiculous. Fancy, um, should have been an attorney. How come you didn't become an attorney, Fancy? Um, you know what? I I've worked in corporate and um, you know, in management, so I had the opportunity to interview a lot of people, and I saw so many resumes with a law degree on it. And as an interviewer, and so the hiring committee, I would ask, you know, you have a law degree. I've asked this so many times, you have a law degree. You know, what's just so many people said they didn't use it or weren't interested. And one of my one of my really good friends um, was a lawyer. She actually passed the California bar. Um, and now she's basically, you know, she it's like an Instagram model. So it just, you know, I don't know. I just, I feel like also too, being a lawyer constrains you so much because you have to always worry about what you say and like protecting that bar card. And that just would not work for my personality, frankly. I would die inside. Well, uh, I think both you and the COE would have been excellent attorneys. And if the COE was an attorney, I wouldn't be doing two shows tonight. I'll only be doing one show. So there you go. Um, huge thanks goes out to uh, Richard Gabriel, who uh, spent 
a lot more time than I think he thought he would, and I hope he will come back. Uh, since 1985, Richard Gabriel has been a leader in the field of jury research. One might say he is the preeminent jury consultant in all the land. Forget Josh Dubin. Uh, he's got nothing on uh, Richard Gabriel, who's uh, been involved in more than 1,500 trials. Here are some of the names of those uh, cases. Aaron Hernandez, Casey Anthony, O.J. Simpson, Phil Spector, Enron. Remember that company? Whitewater, Kwame Kilpatrick. Heidi Fleiss. That's an interesting and fun one. Uh, the list goes on. He's also the author of Acquittal. Um, so check out that book. Uh, Richard, this question and your final thoughts. Any good ideas of when opening statements? I always was taught this. Opening statements, closing arguments. Opening statements, closing arguments. Uh, when will they take place? Um, people in Tallahassee say two, three days and uh, they're on to opening statements. Do you, do you see that happening? I do, especially if... if- he has 40 qualified and then another 14 or something from today. You know, his, if his magic number is I'm going to need about 60, 70 jurors total in my pool, he's already got a certain number. He's got he's getting there. So if he feels like he's got enough to uh, both deal with cause challenges, because he's already dealt with some of that from the questionnaire and some of the individual questioning, uh, it can be another day or two before we're on to opening statements. So I think that's going to be uh, be pretty quick. Um, the the one of the things I do want to say though is I've, I've been involved obviously in a lot of some of these bigger trials. Um, we the jury. I always am a big fan of of the jury system because jurors really do take their job seriously, and we sit we we sit at home we second guess them sometimes, but they are really trying to give that that defendant the presumption of innocence. We, they try to give the burden of proof to the prosecution. They take their jobs very seriously. And sometimes the evidence that they see in trial is different than they see, um, than they've seen on the media and the rules that they have to make decisions by are different. So I, I do like to say that in these high profile trials, despite all of things that we may believe on the outside, always give respect to the jury because they are doing a very, very difficult job. And look at how polite this is. Fancy fiction, that cute little baby photo there. She wants to ask another question. Fancy, the floor is yours. Yes, I would just like to ask our um, our expert here on the panel. Um, you said you've worked with Phil, Phil Spector, um, or you had you know worked um, you know with him. And I just would like to ask: um, Have you seen the mugshot for uh, Charles Adelson? I don't know if I have seen the mugshot for him. Yeah, I just I thought there was a lot of similarities with the hair, and I was yeah. just wondering if you if you made that connection as well. Uh, well, Richard, you know, <laughs> Richard, I'm going to send it to you, but go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I mean, mugshots are never <laughs> you you can't win with a mugshot, and you know the hair is always terrible, and you know you can do you know the Donald Trump defiant mugshot, mugshot. You can do the smiling mugshot, which always seems completely inappropriate. There's a there's an amazing uh, thing that you always take a look at, and so I. I am interested to see what the mugshot is because, you know, sometimes you have to ask that question in jury selection. Have you seen the mugshots? What do you think? Because people in the Phil Spector case just reacted to the way he looked. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just go, boy, he, you know, same thing when, whenever you're doing a gang case, you just look over and you go, he just looks like he did it. Mm -hmm. So those impressions do matter. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, when his mugshots were released, it was one of the best days of my life. So, um, Joel, <laughs> send him the one in the orange sweatshirt. Yeah. Second one. Thank you. I'm going to I'm going to connect you all fancy and then maybe I'll have you just so I don't screw that up. But um, Phil Spector reminds me of uh, just uh, something that's on my mind. Uh, Richard Gabriel, 38 years, one profession became uh, elite at what he does. The COE, who I love to death. She is the backbone of our family. She's had 38 jobs in about a year's time. And one of those jobs, ironically, was working for Dateline on the Phil Spector case. So we have come full circle. Um, the COE is hardworking for uh, days or weeks at a time. And then uh, I've got to re-energize her. So I uh, just couldn't let that slide. Go Georgia. This was a great episode. Richard Gabriel restores such confidence in an often scary legal system. Any final rebuttal there, COE, to that comment? I'm waiting for it. Who is Joe Rogan? I love this comment. Uh, quick reminder, once again, in 25 minutes, I'm back for the Delphi murders. I agree. I sat in that trial every day. Everyone would talk about how Phil looked crazy in that trial. I think it was 2007. He had a, he had a, he had what we call a Jufro, an Afro on a Jewish person, otherwise known as a Jufro. And uh, it did not play to his, uh, to his base. There you go. Um, back at nine o'clock tomorrow, 7 p.m. It said 5 p.m. originally. Caitlin Armstrong, the love triangle at Austin, Texas. Carm is here for that, as is Darby Fox. And we've got a new guest who is a uh, former prosecutor um, out of Tennessee to walk us through that. And then Thursday, we're back with more uh, on the Charlie Adelson trial. Until then, love you, America. Love you, Los Angeles. Love you, North Carolina. Love you, wherever fancy is. Love you, Tallahassee, Florida, Tasmania, the Republic of Ireland, Israel, everywhere there and far in between. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system, or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothies, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.